0: Well, we've come to the end of the first part of Systematic Theology. It's a 13-week class. This is the last of those classes. Next week, we'll start into the second part of Systematic Theology. Just a way to break it down. We could actually make it into one big 26-week class, but, but this at least uh, feels like we've accomplished something, right? We've, we've completed this part of the class. So next week, we'll look at um, more of the aspects of salvation, and that'll take several weeks to do that. This morning, I want to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Dr. Carl Henry um, uh, was interviewed at at some point, and, and he was asked how he could avoid how Christians could avoid picking up the values of the ongoing darkening culture in which we live while at the same time increasing as salt and light in the world. So how do we avoid being darkened by the culture and how do we increase in salt as salt and light? And his response was simply this, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, he went on to explain further because uh, I think that answer does need a little bit of explanation. This is how he responded. In order for us to find the joy of obedience to our Lord and the spiritual reward of a walk with the crucified and risen and returning Redeemer, there is no alternative but a dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the renewing agent of God's distinctive people, His set-apart people. The evangelical churches again emphasize the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, or must once again, excuse me, we must once again emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. Last time we met, uh, last time I was here, uh, we, we talked about who the Holy Spirit is. We talked about his um, that He is a person, that He is a part of the Trinity, that He is God. And so today we want to answer the question, what does He do? What is His work and what is His role? All right. And so I think we need to start by looking at the work of inspiration, inspiration. When I talk about inspiration, I'm talking about inspiration of the scriptures Um, in Second Timothy, chapter three. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles with me? Second Timothy, chapter three. That all scripture comes by way of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would someone read verses 16 and 17 for us? So we don't have any explicit mention of the Holy Spirit there, but but it does say that all Scripture is inspired, or as some translations put it, that it is God breathed, and the breath of God is often referred to in the Old Testament as the Holy Spirit. Now turn to second Peter because this is a clearer passage. Second Peter chapter one, this is a clearer passage that shows that all Scripture was given by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Would some someone read verses 20 and 21? But Moses, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke to God. Alright, so that last verse is the the key there, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but was what took place when, when men were led by the Holy Spirit to speak of God. All right, so, so that means that all Scripture comes by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw this last time. Uh, if you remember, we saw Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, and they would say, "...and the Spirit said..." In the scriptures, and then they would quote something from the Old Testament. You remember we looked at a couple of Old Testament passages, and in that context, who was speaking? It was God, Yahweh. Okay, so so the clear implication is that the Spirit is speaking. That the Spirit is actually the one who who uh, gives the scriptures, and um, so uh, the work of inspiration happens by way of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration of the scriptures. So, if the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, then what do the Scriptures have to say about Him? What does it have to say about His activity in the lives of the people? Well, before we look at His activity in the life of Christ, in the life of believers, in the life of the church, we want to see um, His activity in the Old and the New Testament. And there's clearly uh, some sort of difference between the activity of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So, I just want to draw those uh, kind of differences out and then try to to talk about them. First of all, in the Old Testament, you had what was known as the theocratic anointing. The theocratic anointing. Now, uh, Moses, I believe, was the first one to receive this theocratic anointing. When the Spirit of God came on him and gave him the ability to do his administrative function as ruler of God's people. Now, you remember when it got too difficult for Moses? What did his father-in-law tell him to do? Okay, yeah. You need to choose from among you 70 elders who can help carry your load because you can't do this all on your own, Moses. He's probably leading uh, several million, maybe a couple million people at this time. And so then you have the Spirit coming onto Moses, but also then onto the 70 elders Following that, you had the judges come into play. Uh, well, you had Joshua before that, but then, but then the judges uh, the Spirit of God came on Samson with great power and he was able to accomplish God's purposes. Okay, that's the idea of the theocratic anointing, that God gives His, His theocratic ruler, okay, His, His God-appointed ruler, the power to, to accomplish certain purposes. That was further given to the king's throughout the book of the Kings, that God's specific ruler... Uh, I, I could take you to First Samuel chapter 16 and you could see that it was on uh, Saul. Even a wicked man, that the theocratic anointing. That doesn't mean that he was saved because in chapter 16, verse 14 of First Samuel, it says that the Spirit of God left Saul and went to whom? To David. to David. Okay? And the idea there is that not that Saul lost his salvation, but he lost the theocratic anointing. The the uh, the administrative ability and power that comes from God, and it was passed on to David. Now, and uh, we see this also in Psalm chapter 51, when Psalm when, when David there is crying out to God after he sinned with Bathsheba, and he he prays to God, "Take not your Holy Spirit from me." What is David saying there? So he's saying, "Don't don't allow me to lose my salvation." No, the idea is, "Don't take away this." Ability that I have now as your theocratic ruler and pass it on to someone else too early. Hey, keep this Holy Spirit's power. That's what that is. And can you guess who had this in the New Testament? Who would be the theocratic ruler in the New Testament? Christ. Exactly. And when did this come upon Christ? When did the Spirit come upon Christ? You looked at this last time. At His baptism. That the Spirit of God descended upon Him. Now, did it, now once the theocratic anointing was given to Christ, was it ever taken away? No. Okay. Obviously, He's going to be our theocratic ruler when He comes back for the millennium. Um, but but at now, it's uh, at this point, it's kind of on hold. There's no theocratic ruler on the earth. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you had the Spirit come upon them in a special way uh, through this theocratic anointing. All right. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, Ezekiel writes, "I will put." uh, This is speaking on behalf of God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel, as well as all the other prophets, promise that the spirit will be poured out in great measure upon believers. And then, what we have happen? is the spirit does come upon believers in a great way at Pentecost acts chapter two where the spirit of God was poured out upon them that that he uh, he provided this uh, this special uh, gave this special bond to believers so that they could be united into this one body of Christ all right any questions or comments on Inspiration of the Scripture or on theocratic anointing? Bill. Right. Yep. Yeah, we're going to come to that here in a second when we look at the Spirit's work in the life of the believer that there is spirit baptism, and uh, yeah, you're, you're right, Acts chapter 2. Alright, before we get to the Spirit's work in the life of the believer, let's look at His work in the life of Christ. Um, because the Spirit certainly works in our lives, in the, work, in the lives of God's people, but, it, but it's about Jesus Christ that He testifies and um, and so, His work is very closely intertwined with the work of Christ. The first way that we see the Holy Spirit working in the life of Christ is through His incarnation. His incarnation. Turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Luke chapter 1. Would someone read verse 35 there for us? The angel answered and said that, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of most times, all overshadowed you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Alright, so obviously we're speaking uh, speaking about Mary here, that her virgin conception will be of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and will implant, basically, into her the uh the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the Holy Spirit was active in the virgin conception that in in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Also in the, the baptismal anointing. We talked about this here um that uh that Jesus Christ would receive the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. And then thirdly, in his death and resurrection, certainly it was uh, we, we can't exclude all of his works and miracles and things that happened by the power of the Spirit, but, uh, but also at his death and resurrection. First Peter 3:18 says, "For Christ also died for, for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. and then this part, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And so the Spirit is active in declaring that Jesus Christ has power because He is the Son of God. So we have the Spirit's work in Christ's life. Certainly not exhaustive list here, but, but a few ways in which the Spirit worked. Now we want to think about the Spirit's work in our life and the life of believers. And um, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit works both in in us as we are passive and as we are active. Let me give you an example of when the Holy Spirit works in us when we are completely passive. That is through regeneration. Regeneration. Now, when I talk about passive, I'm not talking about passive like getting your teeth cleaned. Okay? Even the way that I said that, that is a passive way of saying it, getting your something else is done to you. But and there is a sense in which you have some activity, right? You have to pay the dentist. You're the one who sets up the appointment and you tell them you want them to do that. So, you have some activity. Do this for me and then they do it. Um, or like um, buying a meal. Okay, someone else is doing the cooking, but you're actually paying for it. Okay, that's, There is some passivity to that because you're not actually the one cooking the meal, but but there's also some activity, and when I talk about the passivity that we have in regeneration, I'm not talking about that type of thing. I'm actually talking about uh, let's just think of an example of you being found floating in a swimming pool, okay, dead, and someone, or or, or maybe not dead, but but um, but uh, but just uh, unconscious, someone finding you and and, and And uh, breathing life back into you. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about regeneration. Because ultimately, we couldn't make it happen. We can't make ourselves be saved. In fact, the very definition of regeneration suggests that. It is the impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually sick. No. The spiritually dead. We are completely dead, Ephesians 2 says. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that we're out floating in the middle of the ocean and someone throws a rope to us and says, grab on. We'll pull you in. And that's all we have to do. We accept it. No, that's not how it works. We're actually floating in there completely dead and someone has to impart life to us apart from us. So, when the Spirit works in us, He does it when we are completely passive when it comes to regeneration, we are completely passive. And uh, we know this from John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that we must be what in order to be saved? We must be born again. Okay? Just like with your birth, you were completely passive in your birth, in your conception. Uh, it, had to be, uh, it had to be done by God, and that's the way it is with our spiritual life as well. All right, so regeneration. But there's also some active, we could say some active things that we do that the Spirit still gets the credit for. In fact, every activity that we do that, is, uh, that would be a positive activity for the work of God is done by the Holy Spirit. It's actually uh, the Spirit working through us. And that's this next one is called concurrent action that we are working And the Spirit is working. Um, And sanctification is a good example of this. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 for the classic uh, text on this, Philippians chapter 2. We see both our activity and the Spirit's activity or God's activity. Philippians chapter 2. Would someone read verse 12? Alright, so Paul talking to believers, and what is he telling them to do? You be active in your salvation. You be active in it by working it out with fear and trembling. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 13 for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The reason that we do the activity is because God's already working in us. So we can't take the credit when, when there is a positive spiritual action that is accomplished. And here we have this tension between what's known as human responsibility and God's sovereignty. That God has the power to shape our desires to make us do what He wants us to do. Uh, Just like He does with any person in the entire world. Proverbs says that the king's hand is in the heart of the Lord and He turns it uh, like a river whatever way He wants to. Right? Even an unbeliever, God has power to control their actions he says to to uh, Pharaoh, "You know why I raised you up, Pharaoh? Exodus 9:16, so that so that I could make my name known through you. That is, I brought you to power, I brought you to be a wicked king and who would oppress my people, so that I could display my glory through you. He okay? says so God has the power even over the wickedest of people, but but clearly He has power over us. That He has sovereignty." We don't understand how that works, that, that we still have free choice. We make decisions on our own. We're not robots. God somehow works compatibly with our free will to accomplish His purposes. We don't understand how that works, but the scripture constantly puts those two side by side, like they do here. Human responsibility, chapter 2, verse 12 and God's sovereignty. It is God who is working working in you both to will and to do. Verse 13. Alright, so our responsibility is to to obey. So that's concurrent action. So we could say we do have some activity in that. In our, in our salvation, we really had no... I mean, the response that we had was faith and repentance, but that was actually after regeneration. It's kind of an instantaneous thing, but... But uh, it happened after God imparted life to us. It turned on the light and we repented and believed. That's how salvation works. In fact, we'll talk about that next time when we talk about the order of salvation. The Spirit is also active with regard to the fruit of the Spirit. He, he produces in those who are true believers fruit. Uh, Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the types of things that He guarantees to produce in the life of a believer. And yet, we we, we recognize that we have a responsibility not to just be completely passive and say, all right, start producing these in me, but we have a responsibility, lots of commands in the Scripture, to be loving, right? Love God, love your neighbors. Uh, to be joyful rejoice in, in all things we have a responsibility to be patient to, to be gentle to be kind to be good you see see how the spirit produces those in us but we have a responsibility to 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 engage ourselves in doing those things all right again we have this tension here but it's but it's a tension that the scriptures uh, acknowledge but never really explain and then spiritual gifts. The Spirit imparts gifts to His body for the work of the ministry to to produce in it a genuine love and and, uh, and a camaraderie, a, a unity that only He can. Alright? So spiritual gifts. Some He imparts one type of gift, some another, but all are given various, a variety of gifts to help the needs of the body so that we, we are not all... Okay. If we think about it with regard to body parts, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, and we're not all. No matter what type of body part we are, it does, we're not unimportant. We're all important, as as uh, Paul used. I think that's in Ephesians. He uses that illustration. All right. The Spirit's also active in intercession. Turn to Romans chapter eight. intercession he pleads on our behalf Romans chapter 8 and would someone read verses 26 and 27 isn't this an amazing truth? We don't know what we should pray for. Have you ever been there? That there was such a complex situation. You didn't even know how to pray. You didn't know what the proper result would be in this upcoming circumstance. You didn't know how to pray. And so, we have the confidence, based on the Word of God, that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And if we think about this, when it comes to our salvation, this had to take place because we didn't we didn't know that we even needed God before we came to Christ it was the spirit who had to intercede on our behalf and impart to us the life that we we needed in order to see God and to see the scriptures rightly and to respond in faith and repentance you see we before we were christians we did not seek God we didn't even know what we needed the spirit had to intervene for us, so he is active in intercession, and then he's also active in assurance. Look up to verse 16. Would someone read that for us? All right. This is really the highest form of of assurance of salvation. Uh, the way that we know for a fact, or we have confident assurance that we are believers, is that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And um, and this is more than just an an intellectual assurance. We could call this okay with, without going all the way off the deep end. We could call this an ex- experiential assurance that the Spirit somehow gives us a sense in which we are children of God. Let me try to illustrate. Imagine a father and a young son walking along on a beach together, hand in hand. The son knows that his father loves him. But, but then the father reaches down, scoops him up, and gives him a big hug. There, the son is, is able to experience... His Father's love in that moment in a practical way. And I think that's the same way with the Spirit. That He sometimes manifests. You're not going to feel arms wrapped around you necessarily, but you're going to to sense that the Spirit is at work within you and that He is encouraged by you because you are in Christ. Okay, now that's not the only reason, or that should not be the main reason that we know that is, that is, I would say, the highest way we know that, that the Spirit lives in us. But, but again, we don't say we have assurance because we feel like it. Okay, I really feel like I have the Spirit. There are objective realities that we have to recognize. And I've mentioned these before, but, but one is God's promises. God promises that all who come to Him, He will not turn away. He promises that all who come to faith in Jesus Christ will be accepted by Him. Okay, so we have these promises that when we doubt our salvation, we go back to those promises. Is God true? Is, is God's Word true? Is He honest about what He's said? Okay, that if I look to Christ, that He will save me? Um, another way we have assurance is by looking at the cross, the finished work of the cross, that it was ultimately of Christ that I am saved. And then uh, certainly, as we mentioned before, the, the different fruits of the Spirit. If we have uh, evidence within our lives of the Spirit's work, then it's a good indication that the Spirit has saved us. Okay? So there is a sense in which we have an experiential um, work of the Spirit where He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But there's also objective realities that we can go back and look at as well. All right, uh, let me uh, go quickly here to the life, uh, the Spirit's work in the life of the church, and then I'll I'll see if you have any questions. Um, without the Spirit, the, the church is is in trouble. Um, like uh, Dr. Henry was saying, the quote that we looked at the, at the beginning, the thing that we need as believers, the thing that we need as evangelical churches, Bible-believing uh people who, who believe that justification comes by faith alone, the thing that we need the most is the Holy Spirit. And uh and the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who does the work to build up the church. In Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty eight, Paul says to the overseers there, be on guard for yourselves and the flocks, for whom God has made you an overseer. Actually, he says the Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. So, so what we have there is that the Holy Spirit is actually appointing leaders within the church. He appoints the pastor, the deacons within the church to protect it, to unify it, to help build it up. And so the Holy Spirit is active in raising up leaders. He's also active... strengthening it. Turn to Acts chapter 9 with me if you would. Acts chapter 9. Any strengthening that the church experiences, any encouragement that they receive can be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31 with me. This is a progress report by Luke as he often does throughout the book of Acts. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase. If there are any good things that are happening at Ambassador Baptist Church, if we're being led by those in authority to teach and to govern. If we're being encouraged by the growth that we're seeing, then we have an obligation to give the Spirit praise, give God the praise because the Spirit is the one who's, who was the source of that strength, that encouragement, that leading, that moving. And so, we see the the Spirit's work is um, both when we are passive and when, when we are active, it is both within us individually and with us corporately. Alright, the Spirit is necessary for all those things. Any questions on the Spirit's work in the believer's life or in the church's life? Mark, or comments. On the point of intercession, yeah. it is, it's not just complex, but all things Right, right. All right. right. Clarity, yes, definitely. Good point. Um, yeah, it's not just when we don't know what to say, but but it's uh, He's constantly interceding on our behalf, saying, God, respond to these people. That doesn't mean we stop praying, but um, it does give us hope and encouragement that uh, He's constantly uh, taking our prayers and making them effective as God wants them to be. Good. Thank you. All right, any other uh, questions or thoughts? Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Yeah, good. So, not only to appoint leaders, but also to protect the church from false teachers and teaching. Good. All right. Well, there's a couple more things I want to try to cover here in the time that we have remaining. And um, there are certain phrases that, that come up with regard to the Holy Spirit that are often misunderstood. And so, I want to just address those for us, briefly, as we as we conclude, first is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this phrase is used seven times in the New Testament. Uh, the first time is in Luke chapter three, when John the Baptist predicts that. Uh, well, he says it this way: "As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not unfit to untie the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." And then Jesus predicts the same sort of thing in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. He said, John baptized you, speaking of John the Baptist, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, 5. So, what was going to happen not many days from then? Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit baptizes the believers into the body of Christ. Now, Pentecostals will have you believe that this actually tells us that there are three classes of people. There are those who are not saved. There are those who are saved, Christians. And then there are those who are baptized, Christians who are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So what they say is that, okay, you're an unbeliever, then you come to Christ, and then if you want to move up to this higher level of living, You need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And only certain people get this sort of baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, this teaching is in conflict with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Why don't you turn there and I'll show you 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Someone read for us verse 13. Okay, so is baptism of the Holy Spirit referring to an extra spiritual experience that some believers get, according to this verse? No. We are all baptized into one body by the Spirit. Okay, That's speaking of the universal body of Christ. That's speaking of baptism of the Holy Spirit. That it is a, an activity that happens to every single believer. So here are actually the, the real two categories of people. Unbelievers and Spirit-baptized believers. That is, every single believer is baptized by the Spirit. So baptism of the Holy Spirit is is something that takes place now at regeneration. However, when it first happened, it didn't happen that way. Remember, I said Acts chapter two, and I said it was it was a baptism of the Spirit. This is where the Pentecostals get this idea that these people were clearly already believers. You had the apostle or the, the disciples. You had these other 119 people. 109 people in the upper room, and then the Spirit comes out. They're already believers, okay? But the reason that that took place was because baptism of the Holy Spirit is a non-experiential judicial placing of a believer into the body of Christ. Now, why didn't that happen before Pentecost? What was so special about Pentecost with the relationship to the universal church? There you go. Okay, the church didn't start until Pentecost. And so there could be no baptism of the Spirit in that sense before Pentecost. So all these believers are, are they're, still, they're still trusting in Christ and uh, through faith alone by grace alone, but, but they needed to, to come into one body of Christ, which is what the baptism of the spirit is, Trish. Yeah. But if that the fire right. down on their house. And then there's another place that happens to it later on. Right. But after that, established part of the miracle in. Right. But it doesn't happen to the rest of the church. It's not reported that anybody else had that baptized kind in of fire. Right. Yeah, you have the when you have Pentecost taking place it's talking about the spirit coming on them like fire is the the idea there. And so yeah, so the so so it's true. I mean that, that was important to show these people that this was clearly the work of God in them, the work of the Spirit in them. And so it had to be some powerful display of God uh, coming upon these people. But now, okay, we, we don't have a visible display of the, Spirit, of the Spirit. and That's why I call it a non-experiential judicial. You're not going to feel the baptism of the Spirit. Okay? They would because they would have, it would have resulted in the speaking of tongues um and so now that's no longer the case every single believer that is that comes into saving faith is baptized in the spirit yes Right. Well, there there are. Yeah, I think I think what you're getting at is uh, what I'm trying to explain is that you're not going to have an actual feeling of the bat. You, you should uh, obviously have some experience that uh, links you to a genuine saving faith, that you actually repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Those are experiential type things. But what I'm talking about is the actual work of regeneration, where the spirit. Brings you to that place that happens before you actually make those declarations. The Spirit brings you that's non experiential. Okay, that's something that the Spirit does in you, and then it turns into it results in an actual experience. Okay, the baptism of the Spirit, okay, you're not going to have some fuzzy feeling. That's the idea I'm trying to get at. You're not going to have some fuzzy feeling like, wow, I really feel like I'm a part of all these people that I've never known before, right. So that's that's the idea when I say non-experiential. It's judicial. It's done uh, like it were like it's done in the courtroom of God. Okay, and God says, "Now you are a part of the body of Christ." And that's why I say this next point: that the visible expression of that, if we genuinely are saved, we should respond by being water baptized. This is always how it takes place since the inception of the New Testament church. That Spirit baptized believers are baptized by water. This is the external, visible expression of that. Alright, let me um, quickly just talk about being filled with the Spirit because there are some that say that this filling of the Spirit is only a special thing or something that comes only to these higher level of Christians and so on. Um, But the idea of filling... Uh, by the way, it's commanded by Paul. Be, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5:18. The idea of filling in the scriptures has to do with control. For example, in Luke chapter 5 verse 26 and Luke chapter 6 verse 11. Did, did I put those on your handout? No, I didn't. Okay, Luke 5:26 and 6:11 use that same word filled, and it's talking about the people there being. Filled. Filled with grief or filled with fear. The idea is not that their, you know, their fear cup is filled up, filled up all the way to the top, but they are controlled by it. It actually is controlling them. And that's the idea with regard to the Holy Spirit. That when the Spirit fills a believer, it means that He is controlling them. And so there are degrees of the Spirit's filling. And you say, well, how can there be a degree of Spirit? Either your Spirit filled or you're not, and Maybe it'd be best to think about it like uh, blowing up a balloon. Okay, that there is air in that balloon, but as we blow into that balloon, there's even more air. Okay, so the Spirit actually can can do more. He can he can control a believer in a in a supernatural way, in a spectacular way, we could say. All right. Oh, I put them up here for you. Same Greek word for filled. It means to be controlled. Luke five twenty six, Luke six eleven. All right, and uh, how are we filled with the Spirit? I would simply say, as we get in more in in uh, closer connection with the Word, what you're going to find in the Scriptures is that the Spirit is constantly connected with the Word of God. So, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you want to be controlled by the Spirit, then you need to get you need to understand and obey the Word of God. That's how you, you do it. All right, well, the last part is uh, spirit-generated revival. I don't have time to, to talk about that, um, but there are a couple of verses that, that address that there on your handout. Any questions or comments before we pray? Bill. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I I need to I need to study that one myself. Um. I'm not completely sure there. All right. Let's pray. Thank you for your attention. Uh, we'll get into salvation next week as we begin systematic theology two. Father, thank you for your Spirit. We uh, admit that there are many times when we take the credit for. The work um, that, that the spiritual work that's been done in us, and we failed to give the credit to the Spirit. And so, we pray that you'd help us to see His work more clearly as we see your Word more clearly. May He enlighten our eyes and uh, unify us around the center of the Gospel, around the truth of your Word. May we know it and love it and live it because of the work that's been done by Uh, in us by our Savior Jesus Christ. Help us to worship Him and lift Him up in this next hour we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.